Welcome to Millennial Pagan Podcast, the podcast that's bringing a voice to the growing number of millennial pagans in our brand of witchcraft, practice, and worship. We're your hosts, Autumn Wolf and Jara Stone, and in studio we have Lila with us. Hello, everyone. Uh, so, uh, how are we doing this week? How are we doing? Well, I had an evidence midterm the other, or final the other day, so I'm dead inside. <laughs> evidence because you're major I, I am a law student mm-hmm. um i am a rising 2l as of this week um starting on the 14th i will be an actual 2l which is very scary i'll nice. have to actually choose things i want to study instead of being told what to study it's very interesting nice. um i am also a pagan um no wait 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 you're pagan on a pagan podcast <gasps> Well, I'm a polytheist pagan, which you usually don't oh. get here on these podcasts. You usually have the Wiccan variants or the Druids. So that yeah, is true. in Arizona, I'm very much a club of me. Yeah, so. <laughs> you'll be surprised. And I was second way into that because the week beforehand was Lucaria and Neptunalia, which for me is just an excuse to go to the beach. But it's a ritual. And so I had to manage my studying and manage my religious duties at the same time. And it was not happening. Oh, but I did it. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. It's chaotic. That's exciting. Jara, I think you have an announcement. Uh, yeah. So uh, I know things have been just a little, uh, little chaotic with starting the uh, starting the new podcast and all. Um, so we finally uh, kind of planned out an actual schedule for when we're going to be releasing uh, these podcasts. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and do kind of a witchy Wednesday. Ooh. I kind of kind of like the sound of that. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and release. Uh, every new episode on a wednesday so it's going to be every other wednesday and then the minisodes those will be announced on patreon when we actually get those out right yeah and i know that uh uh, i'll I'll be taking care of uploading and all that stuff for the wednesdays right and i'll be announcing the day that we're publishing or around in there when we're recording hey we're going to be pushing out this wednesday so on this wednesday you want to look that way you don't know because with our hectic schedules we no, we're going to be recording three times a month. It's just when are we going to be recording yeah. those three times a month? So we <laughs> promise it'll be out on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So you only have to look on your media for a Wednesday. And I will be warning you sometime earlier that week. Yeah. All right. So, Autumn, what's going on with you? Pagan Gathering Seasons has officially started. And it kind of started out for us with a Lugnasa festival or a ritual with the Grove of the Rising Phoenix, which is Phoenix's local Druid Grove. We'll talk more about that on our mini-sode for mm-hmm. our Patreon supporters. So, for, for the month of August. Yeah. but um, And we'll also talk about what Lugnasta is and maybe a little bit about the fact that it, it being ritual season, uh, pretty much the pagan community as a whole you'll start seeing your local stuff pop up and what Mm -hmm. does that mean so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about for a few episodes in the future as well nice so anyway i exist yes (laughs) and you are here to talk about american law and legal issues as it pertains to neo-pagans however you if you i need to introduce myself with my history as a pagan yeah because you know we do that whole coming of witch story now do we start at age eight or do we start at college because it could be either or well um (laughs) how about you give us the quick rundown of the life story as far as that's gonna be long no um (laughs) paganism is so um up until I basically moved out on my own, I didn't have a whole lot of freedom into what I practiced. I was raised by a very fundamentally Christian mother. 
Um, the type of mother who banned not just Harry Potter, but any fantasy books ever. So sorry, Lord of the Rings. Um, mm. But fortunately, I got to miss out on some really bad books like Twilight, so it's all good. That's true. <laughs> you missed that whole thing. I did. So the first thing I did upon moving out and starting to go to college the summer of freshman year, I went out and immediately bought witchcraft books. Not so much because I was interested in the topic, but because I just wanted a final FU to my mom after moving out. Glorious, <laughs> glorious defiance. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't point out that I went to college at 16, so I was in my rebel teenage phase. Ah, yeah. I graduated two years early. Um, that is a little early. <laughs> so what was the first book that you purchased? I purchased three books. Mm-hmm. I forget what the first one calls, but it was like a little reference book about fairy folk and Celtic folklore. Mm-hmm. I bought a book on Druidry by Zell Ravenheart, I believe his name is. Mm-hmm. And then I also bought a book by Christopher Penzik on his High Temple series. Ah, uh, yeah. I liked two out of those three books. So I kind of, from there, started picking up bits and pieces, particularly stuff that was folklore related. Right. Um, so ever since I was a kid, I've been a huge mythology nerd. Mm-hmm. So like one of my favorite books growing up was actually a book on Celtic mythos. I'm that type of kid. Because <laughs> when your ba- mom bans fantasy, but don't worry, you can say, hey, it's history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did get around that a bit. Um I really liked uh, Penziac's eclectic focus in that you can grab, like, the really Wicca stuff that you liked versus, like, the gods that you like from this pantheon and things like that. And for about a good four or five years, that's kind of how I approached witchcraft. Um, starting um, my senior year of college, I decided to go for a more reconstructive route, which is where I went into polytheistic paism. At the time, I was dating a heathen, which... I'm the type of person where my spirituality tends to match whoever I'm dating. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of issues with heathenry that I didn't feel comfortable with, but I did like this idea of practicing something ancient instead. Mm-hmm. And from there, with some influences from friends of mine who did um, Bacchus worship, I kind of went into the Hellenetic route. And I got really into like Demeter and Persephone and Hades and that nonsense. Because mm-hmm. it is truly nonsense. And Family drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of it is I was living up north in a rural community that's very farm-focused, so I was always within spitting distance of a farm. Mm-hmm. So finding stuff that was related to the harvest that was that I could adapt for Arizona was really important to me, because the Wheel of the Year is not applicable in Arizona very often. No, it is not. <laughs> not the way that it's written in the British not, traditional sense. Not in no. the British way. We don't have snow. No. <laughs> So it was really just empowering to find this kind of system that you could adapt. Like I had taken from Penziac and stuff like that, but just kind of moving it to where it falls in the calendar, taking these gods that I kind of already liked and worshipped and kind of pulling them together into a more worship and rather than witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Um, that changed a little bit when I moved down here to Phoenix because we're in an urban setting. Right. And my really harvest-based worship was just not working anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's where I went into the Roman pantheon, which is my primary focus now. I try to honor specifically the underworld gods, mm-hmm. but I do, of course, your Jupiter, your Triviates, because um, they're worship in sets of three. Mm-hmm. So every month, like at the Ides, you have different sets of three you worship. But basically, the Romans kind of had the same problem where when they became more urban and centralized while also touching, like, all of the Western world, basically, they had to, like, incorporate new ideas. They had to have this urban setting for their worship. And I found, like, all of these things resonated with moving to Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the way that you can just collectively grab everything and put it in the Roman pantheon, which with the Hellenetics, like, I felt bad when I was using things that was not native to ancient Greece. 
So that is where I am now. That is my worship. Huzzah. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, I have a couple of questions. Oh, dear. Uh, since you are a Penzeki fan, have you read his City Magic book? I have. It's one of those things where it's like, I like his work in general, so I like it. Mm-hmm. But I just kind of needed something more that felt connected to the gods, whereas mm-hmm. he tends to be more magic-based. Oh, okay. And I've been just kind of siphoning away from magic as I got more into the spiritual and the self-improvement aspects of it. Right. So it's more a religion so, for you than yeah. a practice. Yes. Interesting. Um, so... Ha- I mean, I'll still hux a bitch, but... <laughs> <laughs> When, when when needed, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Not, not out of just spite. <laughs> so you said your deities are more in the Roman pantheon. Can you describe what the modern worship of the Roman deities kind of looks like from a big cultural standpoint? Like what, do ne- like, what do neo-pagans who do this do? Mm. Well, there is a pretty decent-sized polytheist community. Um, there actually is a convention-specific for mm-hmm. polytheist communities. It's called Many Gods West. It's up in Olympia in Washington. So what usually has, you have your more reconstructive people who are like trying to recreate rituals from old times. You have people who are just, they really like a particular God and are just, you know, they set up their altar and that's that. It really depends on what you're talking about, what tradition you're in, if you're in a tradition, which you aren't always. And of course, within these traditions, there's always fighting. Like um, in the heathen traditions, you always have people who are getting mad at the Lokians, right. the worshippers of Loki and stuff like that. So it's never really set in stone what you do. But I personally try to keep to how the old old ways, basically. Mm-hmm. Kind of hard to go into specifics because each ritual is kind of its own thing. Right. But like, for example, one of the things that one of the harvest vessels that the ancient Romans had was Mars. He was believed to be the controller of this red um, mold that would kill all your crops. So you would worship him to make it go away. Mm-hmm. So I... So for me, it's like I look at the problem. And I'm like, okay, who is probably causing this problem? Who would I need to please? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very much that kind of like, if I do this for you, you do it for me sort of relationship. Right. When I travel, I was recently in Italy. I've been to Italy twice now. I will probably have like relationship with Mercury when I'm abroad that I don't have when I'm at home. Mm-hmm. And it's very vivid, God phone, hey, I'm bothering you aspect. But it's only when I'm doing that stuff. Right. So. Okay, so um, you're talking about traditions. Are you part of a set tradition then? Or um, what would be the closest thing? What kind of references <laughs> would people who want to be okay. like you? But. If you're interested in the Roman pantheon, you're screwed. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So for a long while, especially here in Phoenix, the big group to go to was Nova Roma. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more the gladiatorial reconstructions so not really religion based, but they did do a Saturnalia event. They have a religion aspect. A lot of the books that you can have that are one-on-one books on the Roman pantheon for modern neo-pagans are from Nova Roma. Unfortunately, there was this huge coup that caused this disastrous split and mm-hmm. they have basically been inactive for three years now, at least in Phoenix. They've been okay. inactive. So you could still technically join them if you want that sense of community, but there are, uh, two other groups that I know of. So Res Republica Romana is my personal go-to. They are very transparent on what they do. They have mm-hmm. a huge religious background to them. In fact, recently, they have a huge Russian segment that just bought land to build a uh, temple. Cool. So they actually have a temple. That's awesome. Nice. Um, they are more European-based, though, obviously. But they have a really good online resources for, like, how do you build an altar? What are some good books to pick up? In fact, a lot of my personal library that I have brought to book club have been recommendations from Res Republica. Uh, Res Publica, I keep mispronouncing it. And is but that, that's a website? 
It is a community. They do um, okay. they do rituals. As I said, it's more European based. If you want to actually go to them, so okay. yeah, not well. really applicable here in the valley. But they are very transparent on how they do all their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a forum that you can ask questions on if you're kind of curious. They do require they. I think they have like a twenty five dollar payment thing to join and. It's because they're based off of ancient Rome itself. So you have to become a citizen of Rome, therefore pay your taxes, therefore pay for your subscription. Um, so. Makes sense. And they also, they also have really good podcast recommendations for people who are interested in that. Um, they have a lot of fun stuff just beyond the religion. Um, they do gladiatorial stuff as well. So that that is my go-to. There is also another site slash group that i don't remember the name of i think it's also like res publica Mm -hmm. they have like nearly the same name and they're also more european based but they're more like if you are physically in italy and want to do reconstruction stuff there that's where you go but i will send you the links to this sounds great so and we'll definitely share them on is there any training or did you go through any formal training um, most of my stuff was just me doing me Mm -hmm. because i'm in small town at the time i was at small town arizona where it's like Okay, which Christian denomination do you like the most? Right. That's your kind of option. Mm-hmm. You might have a Jewish temple or whatever or a mosque, but it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So for me, it was a lot of just doing a lot of stuff. There was a good couple of years where I did six to nine month programs that I made for myself. And I'm like, okay, if this really works for me, I'm going to keep for it. And if it doesn't work for me, I'm not going to. Right. And that, that wasn't just re- related to ancient polytheism. I also did pop culture stuff. I did more Wiccan stuff. So a lot of it was just seeing what I really liked and what I connected to. Right. No, that makes sense. Um, I do know there are teachers out there that do polytheistic specific stuff. Like I know Galena Klaskrova, who is really big in the heathen community. Mm -hmm. I do not like her written works, but I do know she does take on students and has like a living tradition through that if you really need a teacher. So there are a lot of opportunities out there, but you do have to look for them. Right. More of the mystery religion, actually a mystery kind of thing. Well, it's also a case of, like, a lot of these polytheistic things, like um, the Starry Bull tradition, like, recently collapsed on its. I say recently, it was two years or so back. Recently That's collapsed on itself. That's um, the reconstruction of the cult of Antonitis also collapsed on itself, and the creator wrote a book on it. So a lot of these mystery cult religions that are kind of secretive and recreating that don't really last long. <laughs> right, right. No, it's a lot of work. So I can yeah. see it being a little hard to keep together. Um, is there any particular type of magic that you do on a regular or? I have been siphoning away from magic just because the ancient Romans, they were pre- the precursors Christianity, not liking witchcraft and they really didn't like it. And most of the stuff that we have from them our curse tablets and things like that. So it's like, mm-hmm. if I want to use stuff that was to this religion, sure, as I said, I'll hex a bitch. But I'm trying to si- kind of stay away from that because I get the feeling like if I try to pull this energy and manipulate it, like that's not what the gods intended. Right. And I kind of want to save that as a last resort. So I've okay. been I've been stepping away from that. The only thing that I still do on the regular is read tarot, right. mostly for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I do... Uh, commune through the cards with my patron gods and goddesses. Mm-hmm. Um, that is primary to the extent. Sometimes, like, if I'm really feeling into it, I'll cast a circle, because I, I did Wicked Eight stuff for a while. Right. You know, it it's comforting. Do what works like for it. you. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really do, like, the light incense or something, mm-hmm. or light a candle and put oil on it. Like, I don't really do that stuff anymore. It's also expensive. Yes. I am a law student. <laughs> In case you don't know, this law school is expensive. Right. Like, yeah. that, that 10 bucks I could save on candles? Mm-mm. No. 
That's right. Grinder's food. <laughs> yeah, ramen. Yeah. A month of ramen. Yeah, that's a whole month of ramen. Yep. Sometimes more if it's on sale. Yes. Ooh, sale ramen. <laughs> anyway, I think we're going to so. take a break there, and then we're going to dive into the heavy topic of law and what it means to us. Oh, right. dear Lord. Dun, dun, dun. So we'll be right back. All right, and we are back uh, with Millennial Pagan Podcast. Of course, we have Lila in studio with us. Uh, So we are going a little bit deeper into the law side of paganism and kind of encompassing what what the laws talk about. We're going to be talking about a couple of different cases that uh, I know, Lila, you've prepared. Extensively. Um, extensively. <laughs> In respect to American legality. Yes. Should clarify, this is modern law. We're not going to be talking about witch trials here. Yeah. Nope. No Salem. No nothing that far back. No colonial <laughs> times. American modern law. Yeah. So I know uh, one of the ones that we wanted to start talking about is um, the, the whole issue with uh, the military not putting on uh, pagan symbols on tombstones. Yes, so this was a long-going issue. Um, It was about a decades-long lawsuit. It began, I believe, in the late 90s and ended in 2007 when it settled out of court. This case did not really clarify any laws or do anything legally that was important. What it did do was it made Wiccans in the military really, really public. Mm -hmm. It put everything basically on the trial of public opinion, which is sometimes more powerful than the court of law itself. Mm -hmm. Now, to specify, it was an individual person suing the Veterans Association, correct? The VA. Yes, it was a widow Mm -hmm. um, whose husband, I believe... I think he was Special Forces. Yeah, I I believe it was Special Forces. And she... um, They would not allow her to put have a Wiccan headstone... They did eventually approve it, but she decided to go through the lawsuit anyway. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it settled, and the Wiccan symbol became carte blanche, something that you can put on headstones. Right. I believe um, if in the beginning, when it all started, the VA had, I think, 38 approved symbols mm-hmm. for tombstones. This was specifically a case in Arlington. Um, her husband had a plot in Arlington, and they were like, he can either have no symbol or he could have one of these 38. And Arlington is a really important military yes. graveyard. So, mm-hmm. And it, it sets the precedent for mm-hmm. all the rest. So um, do you want to talk about uh, what that lawsuit is? Was that a civil suit or how was that described? Um, I didn't really find, once again, this did not right. go anywhere. So it's really hard to find court documents for this without paying out of the bum. Mm-hmm. Granted, okay, technically it's only like 10 cents to get these documents, but I don't like, so ten, I don't want ten, 10 cents to a law student <laughs> is one student. meal. Broke like, college student. Westlaw gives that. me this stuff free. If it's not on Westlaw or Nexus Lexus, I'm not looking at it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so from what I understand, it was a civil suit. Um, mm-hmm. you can sue the U.S. Uh, federally, you can do a civil or criminal. When it comes to issues like this, it's usually civil. Right. Um, that means that the standard of evidence is usually lower. It's usually only monetary uh, rewards, or if you want a specific action, you're right. not going to get jail time in a civil suit. Nope. So that's what makes this very interesting, that they actually settled at a court, mm-hmm. which is how most civil suits end, um, 
cheaper for everybody. It is cheaper for everybody, but unfortunately that means there's no opinion, there's no set precedent, there's no appeals if they don't really like the solution. So the fact that it went so public is really the only major major thing. thing. Now, one of the big issues during this case is that it was during the Bush administration Mm -hmm. and when... um, I believe he was a senator in Texas. It was in two, uh, 1999. Yes. So he was already running. He yeah, was he considered was the GOP candidate. Mm-hmm. And he made a comment that basically amounted that he didn't believe witchcraft was a religion, which was related to another lawsuit going on at Fort Worth at the time. Right. And this is really important because when the presidential candidate who becomes president and starts a huge, massive war and you are trying to get respect for soldiers in that war, like, it is massive that you win against the president, right. even if it's just settling out of court. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, as far as military procedure goes, this didn't really change a whole lot um, as far as, like, manuals go and their rules and regulations, but they do have more approved symbols. I believe you have a list of what they have done. <laughs> so since the 2007 decision, the 2007 decision specifically talked about pentacles at after April of 2007, uh, the pentacle, which is the five-pointed star with a um, circle around it or interwoven in it, is an approved symbol for VA graveyards and graves. Um, 2013, they approved Molnir or the um, Thor's hammer as also another symbol approved for VA gravestones. Mm-hmm. In 2007, they approved Awen, which to my knowledge is a druid symbol also. And as of my last research, there are now 58 approved symbols that the VA will allow individuals to choose as far as religious symbols for their grave markers. Um, another big army thing that has recently happened, not the VA, but in the army, an active military police officer has been uh, authorized to grow his beard, and he is a um, practitioner of Asatru, and that was just this year. Good for him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I, what I found interesting while doing research on this topic was that the military, starting from the 70s, has had a really, has really embraced Wiccan witchcraft in general. Mm-hmm. So I think what's important here is looking at how the culture at large has changed as opposed to how the military has changed. In fact, Wicca was outlined in many of their manuals starting from 1978 onward, and it grew progressively. Um it also has, I believe, as the 2002 version, which I looked at, it had a thing on, it differentiated between Guardian Wicca and other Wicca. It had stuff on the Temple of Satan, or Church of Satan, my bad, Temple of Set, um, and a bunch of other stuff like that, like Asatru and stuff. So okay. during this lawsuit, these were religions that even if you couldn't get your headstone, like chaplains were instructed, um, how do you deal with these people? And granted, these manuals, for those you don't know, are basically like, okay, if you're part of this religion, do you have dietary restrictions? Are there funeral rites that need to be done? Right. It's just like, if you're not familiar with the religion, here's what you need to do if this person dies in action. And they're given to people who their military job, other than just being a soldier, is to be a chaplain, which means their job is to serve the spiritual side of all that they are in charge of mm-hmm. so they might be it's usually higher than platoon it's usually like a whole battalion you're the battalion chaplain or so on and so forth so you're dealing with 
couple hundred people with different belief systems, and you have to have a basic understanding and respect for these religious beliefs, despite the fact that you're usually already a preacher or a pastor. And there's evidence that this has been the military, at least from the 70s Mm -hmm. onward, this has been their thing. Um, During this lawsuit, they actually removed these manuals temporarily from public access, Mm -hmm. presumably in preparation of the lawsuit. But as far as I'm aware, they are now available again. And this is still their raison d'etre as far as chaplaincy is concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the real reason this changed was not because anything in the military that changed, but just because the culture at large changed, which um, we went from the 70s where... to extent the 80s, where the military was not as well regarded as it is today, as opposed to a post-9-11 world where we actually really, really care about honoring soldiers. Mm -hmm. But basically, when you have the biggest military institution going, okay, we need to honor these people, that is going to have some drifting back into the public when soldiers come back from war, when they're, you know, they're doing their VA stuff, when they're trying to get jobs in the real world, and they have these beliefs, like, they're coming from an institution that supports that, and they kind of expect the civilian life to do that, too. Right. And the Veterans Affairs mm-hmm. to also, what they're getting their services because of mm-hmm. their service to also do the same. Yeah. But at the same time, there's no real law set by this lawsuit. And that brings us to another issue that reflects into the public spire, our prison system and paganism. So the big landmark case here was Demer v. Landon, which was a... Basically, it was a First Amendment case about worshipping witchcraft in the prison system. Mm-hmm. It was mostly related to having access to worship materials, which we'll see in a lot of these cases keeps coming up again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So what I figured out, and it was 1986, it boils down to the actual prisoner wanted access to ritual items, which includes knives. Multiple different knives, which, as we know in prison, that's a no-no. You're not getting that. Even till today, modern prisons will allow maybe a plastic knife, depending on the severity of the actual prison. Oh, we're going to get into modern prisons. Right. So what I have found that um, the judge in the actual appeal said, and I quote, that Wicca specifically, is a religious belief that That is in the very first paragraph of the opinion. Yeah. (laughs) Entitles, is entitled to a First Amendment protections, but we vacate the injunction because it is based on an heiress's legal premise. Right. And another um, (laughs) way that I've heard that that judge's statement is said is that the faith of Wicca um, occupies a place in the lives of its members parallel to that filled by orthodox belief in god which i was like that's a pretty decent way of saying no i can recognize that this is a religion which is a pretty big deal i think for wiccans and pagans in general but what does that actually mean for law and our protections moving forward well interesting enough the the opinion goes on that When it comes to religion, it doesn't need to be uniform. So an interesting quote from the district court opinion, which the appeals court agreed with, was that the Church of Wicca is clearly a religion for First Amendment purposes. Members of the church sincerely adhere to a fairly complex set of doctrines relating to spiritual aspects of their lives. And in doing so, they have ultimate concerns, much in the same way follows of more accepted religions. Their ceremonies and leader sculpture, their rather elaborate set of articulate doctrine, their belief in the concept of another world, and their broad concern for improving the quality of life gives them at least some facial similarity to other widely recognized religions. 
And that is mainly what Denver v. Landon used to justify, like, okay, Wicca is a religion. You can't have these items in prison because there are good reasons to not have them, but you do get protection from the mm-hmm. First Amendment. Denver v. Landon is interesting in that it was a um, it was specific to the appeals circuit, uh, the appeals Fourth Circuit, which, if you don't know, in the legal system and federal courts, you have very different circuits in the country that compose of different states. It, we in Arizona are in the Ninth Circuit, which includes basically the entire western half of the U.S. Mm-hmm. The Second Circuit, for example, includes New York. The Fourth Circuit is more of the Carolinas and the Virginias. Now, the way the federal system is set up, uh, opinions like this are only sp- binding precedent in their own circuits. Mm-hmm. So, Wicca being a religion is fantastic if you're in Carolina. Not so much if you're here and that's not binding. It can be very persuasive and often is. For example, in 2009, we have McAllister versus Livingston, which is, once again, Guy wanted specific materials. Guy did not get specific materials. What is interesting about this case is that the Guy wanted, uh, there was four plaintiffs, and one of them wanted a stack of tarot cards. Mm-hmm. And the prison's being that because it's like, well, you can gamble with cards. Right. Mm-hmm. Really? Now, this, um, interesting, this opinion was not a final verdict on whether or not you can have that. It's more of, like, you are, this is a valid issue to bring up if you get, like, if you, these are religious objects and you want to use them for non-gambling purposes. Right. They're not a danger. You can't appeal this. This lawsuit can't go forward. A similar case is Rooster v. White. This is another one where Guy wanted a bunch of objects, did not get the objects, but um, in this case, it was over a period of 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, like, they wouldn't allow him to have a, a Wiccan Bible. They wouldn't allow him to have, once again, tarot cards, candles. Isn't that, that one very recent? It is very recent. It's 2009 also. Okay. Um, and this one was in California. So I have heard about this case. That is yeah, relevant it, to us. It keeps going, yep. actually. From what mm-hmm. the most recent thing I heard was that it's moving on up. Yep the court system yep and so um something that i want to explain to maybe our less legally minded people is that the district courts are so you start out in your city and then you're going to move from city courts to state well it depends if you're filing federally or not right so in the in the state system yes you start out with your city courts and whatnot that's where you get your traffic courts your child courts um homeless court is a big one here in phoenix Mm because we have a lot of homeless people Mm -hmm. from there depending on how your state is set up um, most states have a three court structure where you have your district courts which is where your big lawsuits that's where your trial is that's where you have your jury that's where you submit evidence Mm -hmm. then you move up to appeals which is usually something went wrong in the original trial and we're appealing right from there you appeal on to the supreme court or equivalent thereof Mm mm-hmm it's some states call it something different. For example, the Supreme Court in New York City is the district court level. <laughs> some states so are just some a case little it's, weird. Some yep. cases it's superior court. It, it really depends. But essentially, the Supreme Court is the top of the state that is going to set the binding precedent for your entire state. Now, from there, if it's something that is applicable to federal court, you could jump to the federal system and go to the Supreme Court. And that was set binding precedent for the entire country. And now um, something else is that the Supreme Courts, or when you go to a higher court, they will look at decisions made by lesser courts. Yes. It won't persuade them necessarily, but it is what is called a precedent. And if there is a precedent, they'll 
put so a little bit more weight to the it. The law is just governed by two things. You have your statutory law, and then you have your stare decisis, your case law. And depending on what court you're in, a case could, a different case could be in binding, it could be persuasive, it could be anything. Um, for example, and if we're in the Ninth Circuit, and you're in state court for Arizona, um, Ninth Circuit decisions from the appeals upward are going to be very persuasive on state court here in Arizona. But it's not technically going to be binding. But for example, the appeals court decisions are going to be binding on the lower court decisions. The Supreme Court is binding on the appeals court. So if there is a decision that is higher up on your chain of courts, you have to follow that. It is right. binding precedent. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to these cases, for example, um, for Denton Murphy Landon, which is why it gets cited so quickly, is that it's a very important case with very strong language, but it's not binding. Right. So you have to go through each of these cases that are basically the same in different circuits till they all basically match up. If there's different decisions, um, you could have a circuit split. And in that case, that goes to the Supreme Court and they decide which circuit has the better ruling. So it's just who has the better argument. And if we completely lost you with all of that, we're totally sorry. Don't worry, Marcel, I'm, one I'm, students can't do it either. I'm sitting here and my brain is fried, just, just so you guys know. So this yeah. is why you hire an attorney. Yes. Yeah. And that's a great example of if you ever get into legal issues, don't try to argue these things for yourself. Yes, you have the right to an attorney. You also have the right to um, argue law and protect yourself legally. I do not suggest it unless you have a strong education in this, have a strong education in law specifically, and that you still hire an attorney to be your second chair. Even attorneys hire attorneys. Yes, yeah. that's why we so, have second chairs. I just want to point out something really fun about McSallister v. Langston. Of all of the banned things, which was like candles, wands, etc., the only explanation they gave was for salt. Because if you put a salt circle out, someone could trip on it. That amuses me greatly. You can I would trip think, on salt. I would think Wiccan practitioners like, use salt. This might cause people to sleep and fall, posing a safety hazard. That is why the person was declined salt for their rituals. I would argue more it would ruin the floors, but okay. Stuff against going against the prison system doesn't all have to be negative. You don't always get your stuff banned because it's a safety hazard. A positive example of this is from 2016, Knowles v. Feister, where a man who wore a pentacle um, was allowed to continue wearing his pentacle. It had previously been banned because the prison warden was like, well, this could be a gang symbol and we don't like gangs. And the courts were like, no, it's, it's, it's not. A religious it's a religious symbol. symbol. If you're going to allow crosses, you have to allow that just as much. Exactly. Only thing I could see with that is it could be used to choke somebody. You could do that with a cross too. Yeah, you can do that with a cross too. You can do that with with any necklace. But they actually have a picture of the pendant in question. Oh, that doesn't even have shank abilities. It doesn't. No. It's very elaborate. Maybe somebody would want to try and steal it. But, eh. <laughs> anyway, That's when it boils down to it, we have we've already talked about cases that are occurring and affecting a lot of our soldiers. We have cases that are affecting people who are already in the uh, corrections facilities and systems. How do these relate and what kind of things happen when you're a civilian and you have problems? <laughs> <laughs> Or, or, or what kind of history <laughs> do we know of where civilians well, have had problems? The interesting thing is that the Supreme Court and the Congress and basically all branches of government are really not inclined to define religion. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to protecting new religions, such as Wicca, paganism, whatever, you either have to fight a really uphill battle and prove you are a religion, 
or the courts are going to be inclined to be like, is this it or is it not? The two major cases that are used for defining a religion within the current legal system is the first is USB Ballard, which was from the 1940s, very old case. And it basically was about this couple who were possibly fraudulently creating a cult. Mm -hmm. Um, You can look it up. This is an extremely important landmark case. What's important about this case is it came to this interesting conclusion. And it wrote, Men may believe what they cannot prove. They may be put to proof that their religious doctrines or beliefs. Religious experiences, which are as real life to some, may be incomprehensible to others. Yet the fact that they may be beyond the ken of mortals does not mean that they can be made subject before the law. Many take their gospel from the New Testament. But it would hardly be supposed that they could be tried before a jury and charged with the duty of determining whether those teachings contained false representations. The miracles of the New Testament, the divinity of Christ, life and after death, the power of prayer are deep in the religious convictions of many. If one could be sent to jail because a jury in a hostile environment found those teachings false, little indeed would be left of religious freedom. Okay, can can you break that down in layman's terms? I will. So, (laughs) essentially what the court is deciding here, and this is basically just a clarification of a long history of case law that goes back all the way to the witch trials in England, is that we don't like convicting people for their beliefs. Mm -hmm. You know, if you believe in something that is really important to you, you do you. We only want to get involved when there's something obviously wrong in the situation. So what the court is saying here is like, you can't just sue someone because they might not believe in the cult that they have created. That's probably why Scientology is still a thing. Yep. <laughs> or uh, Pastafarian. Please don't sue us. <laughs> yeah, uh, oh. pa- pa- Pastafarian. Yeah. Pastafarian. Yeah. Pastafarian. And that is going to lead us into the next case, which is U.S. v. Myers, a.k.a. the case about the Church of Marijuana, which is my favorite case ever for this moment. So uh, smoke them if you got them. Let, let's try and get the hard discussions done so that everyone kind of can retain yeah. the information. Then please light up after. That's all I ask. Wait. This is yeah. hearsay. I am not smoking. You cannot use this in the court of law. <laughs> All right. So how the law basically functioned after Ballard is that it was kind of up to Congress to decide when something is going to be involved in a law regarding religion. Usually in the case of, for example, the Voting Rights Acts of 1965 had a short, here's a definition of religion. You can't discriminate based on this. And there were a series of cases. I will not go into the history because it's long and boring. But the courts admit by the 1995, which is when U.S. v. Armour happened, that they screwed up big time with a lot of these old cases because they didn't want to create this box that you can exclude things in. Mm-hmm. Um, a famous case that is actually studied in Con Law 1 for us law students is a case where the Supreme Court decided that a Native Americans, I forget which tribe, but they were smoking, I believe it was Doctora plants or something? No, not Doctora. Um, anyways, illegal substance. They were doing it because traditionally they've always done it. It's in the plant that grows in their area. And then the Supreme Court was like, who cares if it's religious? We don't want people to smoke illicit drugs. And Congress kind of retaliated to that. And then that got shot down. It's this disaster of a legal station. But basically what happened to USB Myers is that they came to this conclusion that one man's religion will always be another man's hearsay. You can't find a particular set of beliefs um, is not a religion just because you disagree with those beliefs. Unfortunately, um, with the current law that this case was about, which unfortunately is now unconstitutional, they're like, well, someone could just create a church of marijuana and say they're Revlin and then get all these benefits 
and protections for basically smoking pot. And what the court decided is they came up with this five-factor test, although if you look at it, it's more like 20 factors because it has subheadings. And when you look at defining a religion today, you usually look at this test. It looks at if there is a moral ethical system. It looks at um, the metaphysical beliefs of the system. Is there a comprehension to the beliefs? Mm -hmm. Are there accruements? Um, For example, like external signs that there are religious elements to this. Is there a founder, a prophet, or a teacher in this religion? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of broken down. Like, are there ceremonies? Are there rituals? Is there holidays? Are there diets? And this is a test that, while it's not binding, it's one that courts use a lot. Mm -hmm. So if you can look at this balancing test and be like, well, my religion was founded by this person. We have these holidays, like Wicca can do. It's an easy way of just saying, okay, we're a religion. We meet these requirements. Right. As I said, this is a test related to a law that is no longer constitutional, but that is basically the idea of what religion is. Unfortunately, that brings us to a problem when we're dealing with more new agey stuff. Right. Which is often picking and choosing what they want to look at. From what I saw, Dieter B. Lando actually talked about occult practices mm-hmm. and the whole question of is Wicca an actual religion was, is Wicca a religion or is it just a set of occult practices? And Wicca has had a lot of luck here because they have, especially if you look at like the Circle Sanctuary stuff, like right. they have tried extremely hard to meet the form of Western religions. Right. So it's a lot easier for Wiccans to be like, okay, we're a religion than it is for, well, everyone else. Right. <laughs> and being around longer and doing all of that work, like uh, Raymond Bucklin and Margot Adler of publicly saying this is what Wicca is. <laughs> and it, just nobody's had the time or the ability We've to do that. We've also had important cases, like, for example, Roberts B. Ravenwood Church of Wicca, which decided that, no, you can't just take away someone's tax exemption status if they're an approved religion. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I don't think that church even exists anymore. Uh, the Church of Wicca? The Ravenwood, they, oh. I think they sold their church. Because yeah. I found a subsequent case mm-hmm. where they like didn't want to pay when they were selling off their stuff. So that brings us to more New Agey beliefs. And a case I really want to talk about here is a California case. Um, it is called Alvarado versus City of San Jose. And um, basically the background to this case was there was a statue being built of the deity. You know how to pronounce it? Uh, Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl. And someone um, decided to sue and decided like, hey, this is a deity that appears a lot in New Age books and things like that. We've all probably read a book that probably talks about Quasicolo in some form. And the basically the, the problem here is like, okay, if the city is paying for the statue, does that mean they're promoting a religion? And the court eventually came to the conclusion that, well, New Age beliefs like this aren't really a religion. Because they pull from a lot of sources, which sucks for us eclectics in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, They are not really formulated this way. And also the purpose of the statue was to celebrate, um, I believe it was Aztec heritage Mm -hmm. of the residents of the city. So it's not just because you can say, well, I firmly believe in this thing. And there's published stuff about this thing. You can't immediately say it's a religion. So that's one of the downsides to this issue. And also, there are similar cases with the rise of Harry Potter. There was a large series of cases, we won't go into all of them, of schools being sued because they had witchcraft activities going on. Mm -hmm. For example, um, Brown v. Woodbin Joint Unified School District was about uh, whether or not a religious assignment, I believe it was an assignment about 
reading a book and then pretending you were a warlock and like what type of rituals would you do if you were a magical person Mm -hmm. and the court ultimately decided this is a school assignment it's not a religion it's not even if there's aspects to it which could be construed as wiccan or witchcraft the purpose is secular you're teaching children right Mm -hmm. There was another case where they said something about the purpose is secular and to grow community about having Halloween decorations. Yes, I believe that is Geyer versus School Board of Mm -hmm. Aluka County. And yes, it was Florida. Florida. More Florida. (laughs) Florida. (laughs) More Florida. And this was, there were several issues in this case. You mentioned the big two um, Halloween decorations and whatnot, whether or not that could be considered witchy, crafty stuff. And as we've noted, like, Florida has a history of like satanic panic and stuff like that. To Such this day. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we're going to dive a little bit into satanic panic in a little bit. But basically, they were like, okay, well, if you're in Halloween, obviously it's kind of secular. We can prove that. But what about Earth Day? You're trying to have this community event. It's a spiritual experience where you reflect on the earth. These are all spiritual beliefs that, by and large, Wiccans and pagans tend to have. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they decided that, well, the purpose isn't put on by a religious organization, by religious people. Like, just because something coincides spiritually does not mean it is religious. Marrying the pool of stuff we can look at even further. Yep. And last one, just to touch on it, they have a similar case to this was also, um, it was about whether Magic the Gathering is satanic. And that always amuses me because I played a lot of Magic back in the day. I remember hearing about this one. <laughs> yeah, so basically what happened was this school would have an after school activity is where people would play magic, which if you've ever gone to it, it's mostly just people dealing cards and arguing. Um, trading cards. A lot of arguing, a lot of trading. I had the best white deck back in the day. You don't even know. Oh, I, I had I, I, four, Three people had to team up against me to defeat me. I had, I had a great life and uh, life and death deck. <laughs> had a, It was a white and black deck. Awesome. All right. <laughs> and for everyone else who hasn't played Magic the oh, Gathering. Magic the Gathering, it's a card game where you summon monsters and do magic and whatnot against oh. another opponent and that sort of thing. I just assumed everyone knew. I was just all saying right. all of that you just said went yeah, yeah. right just, over just, our heads. I'm just clarifying that. <laughs> um, so, and back in the day, um, more of the cards tended to be more overtly have satanic reference and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which caused problems because satanic panic. Um, where yeah. people are like, hey, are we teaching our kids about Satanism through this card game? D&D also had similar issues. I remember there was a newscast about D&D at some point when I was a kid. My grandmother goes, you never play that. I play D&D. <laughs> I play a lot of D&D. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have any of you seen the Tom Hanks movie, like Mazes and Monsters? Yes. <laughs> I love that movie. It's so bad. It's a whole Satanic thing movie about why D&D is evil, and it is the Best. And Tom Hanks is in it. And Tom- yep. It was his first movie mm-hmm. ever. Another one for the list. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. what happened with the Magic: The Gathering case? Once again, they were like, "Okay, well, in this case, like you had to have parent permission to attend this thing. It was not sponsored by the school. It was just on school property. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to be religious, and even if it was, it's not really affiliated with the school aside from location. Right. And location is important to bring us back to." Um, uh, Witchwood Church of Wicca, like one of the key facts there was they had to look at the use of this building. And they're like, okay, a lot of Wiccans come and worship here. So therefore it is tax exempt because it is a place of worship. Right. So it just kind of ties everything all together. Mm-hmm. 
Now, we've been talking a lot about Satanic Panic, so I don't want to talk about it specifically, but I do want to talk about how the courts reacted to it, right. for lack of better words. So, for those of you who don't know, starting from the Manson murders onward, people became really concerned about cults of witches and wizards and Satanists basically committing crimes, and very often you would have issues where something would be found at a crime scene that seemed vaguely Satanic, and then the newspapers would go and run with it, and... That's a big issue because it taints the jury. Right. If, they're, mm-hmm. if they think you're a witch, that could be extremely prejudicial against you. Mm-hmm. So in the 90s, basically what started to happen is people started to realize, okay, we need to apply the rules of evidence to witchcraft cases. We can't just let this run wild. An interesting one, which was, I think it was called Communications v. Addison, was like, all right, when, if there is a satanic pain situation where a lot of news goes out, for example, our... Florida murders, like, assume someone is arrested, how long do we have to cool down before we can take this to trial? So the jury, it's not on the forefront of their minds anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, Askin was an interesting one. It was a Pennsylvania case. So this is specific to Pennsylvania, but they decided five months is sufficient. So uh, if you are in a situation where a lot of people are, like, blowing up about your witchcraft, like, it could be as soon as five months that you can go to trial, and that is legally okay if you're in Pennsylvania. As far as I know, that's still good law. An uh, interesting Satanic Panic case, which I don't seem to have in my notes for some reason, is a case called Naylor. And it was essentially about someone who, I think this was the late 70s, early 80s. He was accused of murdering um, one of his friends. And it was this group of people. Right, I read this. It line. was one of this group of mm-hmm. people who all called themselves warlocks. It was right around Halloween. They joked around that they were going to have a ritual, quote unquote, where the victim, the murder victim, was going to just be like left outside naked when they all left because skyclad rituals. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so the fact that this murder happened with all four of the people in this coven, in addition to murder victim number five, present around the time where this ritual was supposed to happen. There was concerns about whether or not to really go hard on the witchcraft theory. And the prosecution decided to do this. Right. Um, Specifically, they brought in a lot of witchcraft books owned by the defendant. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason they did this, just reading through Between the Lies, they have no idea which person actually killed this gentleman. Right. If he was a gentleman. Everybody would turn. Everyone was there, but they basically pointed to each other. There was blood on some clothing. There was blood on someone else's clothing. Someone owns a knife, but someone else could have used it. Right. So basically the only thing they had was like, okay, which one of these people have really circumstantial evidence to prove that they would have done this ritual this way? Right. From what I heard, the person that they went uh, for the hardest um, had evidence of blood on his jeans seen by another person the day after the murder occurred. Uh, He was also the person who uh, removed or destroyed evidence of the victim's clothing and his own clothing and was also the person who owned a knife that also could have been used. But at the same time, we don't know what happened. All of that stuff could have just been him cleaning up the crime scene because his friends murdered. Right. So what they, all they could prove is that he owned a knife that could have been used that also matches up with the wounds that he was seen with blood on him the next day was also seen as quoting said, I'm the one who slit his throat and uh, 
again, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree, hearsay. But the person, and it was the person who's saying, I saw him with blood on his clothing that said this. And another person corroborated saying later in the day, I saw him with blood. So on there was his a clothing. decent case against this guy, but the way the prosecution went for it is that they found a lot of books on witchcraft mm-hmm. connected to this guy, and they basically put all of them into evidence. Right. And they put, I believe, 11 books all together. And um, on appeal, he was arguing like, hey, wait a minute. This isn't tied to the crime. It's just stuff I happen to believe. Why is this in here? And interesting enough, the court decided that 10 of the books were actually okay to submit as evidence because 10 of them were books. And this was the 70s. So this probably would have been like or late early 80s. Probably would have been like the Buckland books, probably Gardner books. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the really old witchcraft books that were really positive on witchcraft, like, okay, we're not violent. We're not Satanists, whatever. And at least 10 of these books were in that vein of witchcraft is positive, health or whatever. And they decided that if the jury saw these books, they wouldn't immediately think that witchcraft was evil. Right. So they, it wouldn't have presidential value. Right. Now, interesting enough, the 11th book was decided to be presidential. And this is because it, the cover had a picture of a guy in a cloak with a knife similar to the one used in the murder. It was a book that was very anti-witchcraft and being like, oh, well, Satanists can do this evil stuff to your children, blah, blah, blah. It was that type of book. Mm-hmm. And that is extremely prejudicial when you right. have someone that looks like the defendant. It's telling you that this is evil. It outweighs the probative value, especially when there's already 10 books on witchcraft. Right. Mm. But the last thing they ruled at is that, okay, it was prejudicial, but it was so insignificant that he would have been charged anyway. Right. And unfortunately that... I don't particularly like that aspect of law in relation to witchcraft, but it is very standard in the court systems that if it, if a mistake is considered harmless, as if the court makes an error like that, mm-hmm. then if you don't get a new trial, you just got to deal right. with what, whatever verdict you got. And now prejudicial, we're talking about showing the jury this can sway the jury mm-hmm. enough to a decision not based on actual facts. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... There, there's a lot of different types of prejudicial stuff. For mm-hmm. example, misleading the jury. Not related to Wicca at all, but um, the Oklahoma City McVale bombings. Mm-hmm. There was an appeal there where they decided that um, an alternate theory of the crime could not be pursued because it would have been a trial within a trial. We don't like that. So that would have misled the jury on a completely different issue. Right. Um, similarly, like inflaming passions, which is usually what satanic panic is. You just inflame the passion of the jury. So they have to convict because it's an evil Satanist, yo. Right. Yeah. And I actually, there's a recent case that sounds very similar to mm-hmm. the one that we just discussed. Um, Sadly, there are many. Yes. But in 2015, there was a murder that happened in Florida that um, had a lot of news coverage. I do not know 100% if it reached out to Arizona, but since I was still... I on, remember reading about it when right. it came out. And I, I think w- I've mentioned it a few times already. So. Possibly. But these are called the Blue Moon Murders, or that's what, the, um, what, what we hear about in the news. Mm-hmm. It's not the actual name of the case. But what happened was the day after when all the publicity started happening around the it was a, a triple homicide mm-hmm. that occurred in a home. A woman and her two adult children were murdered in the home. The sheriff of the town came out and said that these murders have ritualistic elements to them in the way that the bodies were found and in the way that the bodies were displayed. And the injuries caused the bodies. And we believe that because they happened during the blue moon, that they are Wiccan ritualistic 
murders. And he did say that in quotes, Wiccan ritualistic murders. And I know everybody on here is pulling their hair out going, but not Wicca. Yeah. And um, I actually followed it pretty closely because when I heard that, not of course, flames out of the eyes. Um, and flames. I can't actually find proof that he retracted his statements, mm-hmm. which is annoying because I feel like I remembered somebody turning around saying whether it was within the sheriff's office or the sheriff who said this himself, that that's not actually what we're looking at now this case has come to trial the gentleman who is believed to be the one who caused the murders i think another issue with blue murders is that there was a very similar murder during a blue moon also in 2007 that i was able to find Mm -hmm. in my research so that was like maybe this is connected maybe this is ritual and repeating so that's probably where part of that came from right um well from what i heard that even that day that the sheriff said that they had a suspect in mind this suspect was known to be interested in Wicca, had a Wiccan book in his work office. The family that were murdered were very reclusive, very quiet. And it was the elderly woman's boyfriend who apparently did commit the murder. Um, and there was, again, a slashing of the throat type incident that occurred to the bodies, among other things that they believed were ritualistic. They did come out later and say that the body positioning had nothing to do with it being believed to be ritualistic. Each body was found in, in a different part of the house and not positioned in And a it doesn't area. take a lot for news media to take off on this direction. For example... There was hundreds of articles. Murder of Jeanette De Palma. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to spend too much time on satanic cases, but I think this is important because um, this was a person who was murdered on a place called the Devil's Teeth. There mm-hmm. were possibly logs arranged around her body to mimic a coffin. There's conflicting reports about whether or not there were like little ritualistic items around her. Mm-hmm. But then, like, when actually bringing this evidence to people like Ronald Hutton, who is, you know, a huge important scholar, like, he's looking at it and is like, this isn't satanic. Right. And yet there was still police pursuing these satanic ends. Right. So it is there. Are, the satanic panic is a huge issue. Unfortunately, not a whole lot of law outside of, well, we don't want the prejudice to get to the jury. How do we handle this? Right. Mm-hmm. And sadly, all those kind of news articles in today's day where everyone's on the Internet had even less of a chance to protect the jury from being tainted. We saw that a lot, um, jury tainting and jury issues with the Trayvon Martin case because it was so publicized. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of these cases also come up when witchcraft really has nothing to do with the underlying thing. For example, in State v. Kimrell, like one of the things that they, this was a case where someone got murdered. and mm-hmm. But one of the things that got stuck is that one of the guys like attended a seance and the prosecution like really laid on this for no apparent reason. The court rightfully called out like, okay, this isn't okay. This has nothing to do with the case, but little things like that are just the prosecution themselves might be inflamed by all this. So it's very important that we have these rules of evidence to keep that from happening. Now, A really fun case, switching off to more general legal advice if you ever find yourself in trial, is People versus Uemskra, which... (laughs) This is one of your pet faves. I love this case. It is a Michigan case from the 80s. And essentially what happened, it was a fraud case where a... I don't know if it was a young woman or not, but I will call her a young woman. More or less tried to sell a mobile home to someone when she didn't actually own the mobile home. Mm Mm-hmm. And 
for some reason, the person who was suing her was basically like, well, the reason I didn't uh, file for fraud as quickly as I did is because she's a witch. I was scared of her. And this poor woman, uh, the internet's being a bit slow, but I will pull this quote for you because it's beautiful. Um, she basically, while she went on stone the stand, by the way, never be the defendant on the stand. Don't do it. Never do it. Don't do it. Don't do um, it. She testified in her own defense. Essentially what she did is she basically described Wicca as it existed in the 1980s. Question from the defense counsel. Would you please explain what this means to you? Please explain what the word witch, witchery, witchcraft means to you. The defendant continues. First of all, we are a religion that is over 40,000 years old. We are the original religion from whence all of the religions came. The word witch is paraphrasing, something that has been added, which comes around from the Anglo-Saxon word meaning wise. In pagan early times, we were judges, doctors, knowledgeable people, and being a witch has nothing to do with anything other than religion. Much is made. At this point, the judge interrupts her and goes, I'm missing half of what this means as relation to you. The defendant continues. It is a religion. It is not new. It means simply wise one. This comes way back from early times. We practice perfect love and perfect peace. With the onset of Christianity, most of us were murdered. So there came, at this point, the defense counsel interrupts and says, I'm not asking for a history of it. You say it's a religion to you and it means certain things in terms of love, trust, and belief. Defendant, what it means to me is we live it every day as opposed to putting it on Sabbath or holidays. Defense counsel, and your belief of this religion does in any way, shape, or form mean casting spells or hexes on other people. Defendant, casting evil spells? We don't believe in evil. That's actual court testimony. <laughs> we don't believe in evil. We don't believe in evil. Evil's not a <sighs> thing anymore. Yay! As Autumn here knows, like, historical inaccuracies just amuse me greatly. Yes, or, um, going but that is not on... that is not the point of this testimony. <laughs> When the judge is literally interrupting you to say, why is this relevant? That is a cue for you to shut the fuck up. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and this yeah. case went on a little bit further because then the opposing counsel decided to do cross-examination, which you are legally allowed to do. Oh, dear. So like, oh, so you're saying you are a witch and the reason our plaintiff didn't file as quickly is completely justified. Thank you. <laughs> Essentially. And this went on appeal because this is a woman testifying about her religious beliefs. She's like, hey, wait a minute. This is religious discrimination. This has nothing to do with the case. What the heck? Right. At which point, um, I actually brought this up with my evidence professor. We could not figure out why the plaintiff was originally allowed to testify as to the witchcraft to begin with before right. this testimony happened. Because generally speaking, that if it has nothing to do with the case, it should not be in the case. We don't like character evidence to be in trials in general unless it's relevant to prove something other than the truth of the statement. So we were just confused. So we assume this lady just had a bad lawyer. But sadly, also, but sadly, once you open the door to something... That's what I'm getting to. Anybody can now, take it Now, the exception anyway. to character tra trait witnesses and stuff like that, or character trait evidence, stuff like that, if the defense counsel brings it up, the defense specifically brings it up, the door is open. Which Cross examination just did. Yep. And they try to bring this, um, like, First Amendment case of, well, this is religious discrimination, and we're just describing a religion. This isn't evidence. You shouldn't have testified. Um, <laughs> right. And what the court basically ruled at was, like, well, it would be unfair to the plaintiff if the defense was able to put on all of this evidence and not have cross-examination. Cross-examination is an integral part of our court system. And if there is no discrimination happening here, which there really wasn't, it was just a lady talking about her beliefs, then... The rules of evidence apply. So. 
Right. And that goes back to jury tainting. She started mm-hmm. it and then Now the he... jury knows all this stuff. Right. Which and they it... never would have been able to put into evidence otherwise. And didn't need. And did what not need. all the defense the attorney needed to ask was do you in any shape or form practice hexes or any negative magic that would have led the plaintiff to believe probably that didn't he even would have, have to testify that at all but that probably would have been the best route if they really wanted to mm-hmm. discredit the plaintiff that way and, then and from what i understand this woman just did like red tarot for the plaintiff like it wasn't hexing or anything wow. right but it's so it didn't yeah. even really have a real reason to believe that she was a witch other than just a tarot reader. Well, I mean, she was talking about perfect love and perfect trust. So you, she's some form of British oh, traditional Wiccan. Yes. Like. No, I'm not <laughs> questioning whether she is or she isn't. But yeah, totally unnecessary. Which, speaking of tarot, that brings us to laws about practices that aren't specifically religious, such as tarot reading and stuff like that, but are still part of the problem. So... What most people are familiar with is like anti-medium and anti-tarot laws. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the state you're in, they're going to differ from place to place. This is one place where if you're really concerned about it, hire an attorney. You will thank yourself. It'll be a lot of money. You'll thank yourself. But um, the general basic premise, if we go back to the Ballard idea, like you are allowed to have spiritual beliefs. That is okay. What's not okay is if you're using those beliefs to manipulate people, mm-hmm. which when it comes what a lot of mediumship laws against and tarot ship etc are against are like okay well if you're charging money for this person how do we know you're not telling them things they want to hear so you get more money right for example oh you have a curse on you i'll remove that tea from you for five hundred dollars a couple months later oh gosh you have another curse on you that's gonna be more this time around you know that's right they want to avoid stuff like that so to protect citizens from gullibility yeah. Their own gullibility. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting case here that I found was Moore King versus County of Chesterfield, where this person tried to argue that being a tarot reader, spiritual guide, etc., was a religious thing, and therefore she did not have to pay taxes. This case did not do well for this plaintiff. <laughs> um, essentially, what the court ruled was like, once again, we care more about the business side of things. If you're using this as a business, business rules apply. Right. While you may be doing spiritual and religious stuff, like you are literally charging people for your advice, you gotta pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting one, if I can find it, was a man who, and I love this, um, he, when he died, he described the reason that he wasn't leaving anything to his wife and daughters is because they were witches and he didn't like that. So he left nothing to them. And of course, the daughters in question tried to challenge this will, like, hey, wait a minute, you can't just write us out of the will because of some dumb belief. In which case, the court system was like, actually, yes, you can. If you have legal issues involving wills, it's going to suck for you if the premise is witchcraft. And I think that might have actually been an Arizona case. Well, Oh, no, the Arizona case that I found was completely unrelated. It was going back to the book section. It's also in the kind of the manipulation territory, so it is relevant. It's an Arizona case of basically this horrible jerk bag of a father was sexually abusing his biological daughter. Mm-hmm. And he was using his w- Wiccan um, religion to kind of tell her, like, oh, don't worry, it's okay in our religion. They don't state which books he got it from. I'm assuming it's the Frosts. But, I was about to say, we talked yeah, about like the, the, the record. Right the record does not tell you which book he was referencing, but it's like, he said it was in a book. It's got to be the Frost. Yeah. But that was one of those cases where they were like, okay, well, we're asking about this man's religion as it relates to his character. Like, is that discrimination? Because it's manipulation, but it's also religion. Mm-hmm. And eventually the court figured out here, like, okay, we care more about not getting people hurt. So as long as we're not asking questions in a way that would inflame the jury, we can ask questions like, what is your Wiccan beliefs? 
you know, what did the girl think Wicca was versus what a expert witness would say it was, that sort of thing. And that right. is binding precedent in Arizona. So for Arizona listeners, don't abuse your kids. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> for, for any listeners, don't abuse your kids. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. But yeah. That is a case where y- it doesn't matter if your religion is coming in if you're using it for a bad reason. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yes. And another case about children in Church of the Lukami Babalu. Ab- I, I butchered that. I'm sorry. Inc. versus the city of Hylia. Um, this was a case where, and it went to the Supreme Court. So this is binding throughout the entire country. And basically, the there was a series of laws that were put in place to ban animal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons they gave for this is because children who witness animal sacrifice are going to be scarred for life. And there, there was a series of other reasons, too. But that was right. one of the big primary ones that was mm-hmm. referenced in this case. And um, this was regarding um, Santira religion. It was an area where that is very, very prevalent. And for those of you who don't know, animal sacrifice is a big part of their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court had to really look at this as like, oh, right. Are these laws designed to actually protect the public, children particularly, or is it designed to basically remove a central element of Santira worship so that these people cannot practice anymore? And the Supreme Court decided, like, you may have good reasons for enacting these laws, but if your core goal is to get rid of a specific type of religion, it is unconstitutional. Right. And I have another animal sacrifice type law, um, Jose versus the city of Ellis, 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 Texas. From None of us can pronounce things. <laughs> yeah. A city in Texas in 2010, Jose Mercedes is a Centuria practitioner who sacrificed goats in his backyard. The city in Texas that we will not try to say again, <laughs> came and said, A, you can't do that because uh, we have slaughterhouse laws, which is about cleanliness. Makes sense. We also have laws about animal cruelty. Makes sense. And he turned around and was like, okay, but I'm doing this in a non-cruel way and within the confines of my religious belief. It actually went up to state appeal and the state agreed with Jose in the Texas specific Religious Protections Act. Mm-hmm. So Texas specifically Protections Act does protect centuria practices of slaughtering animals as seen appropriate and not animal cruelty. And it's it's one of those hard cases because there are times when there are groups that don't do it humanely or they mm-hmm. don't keep their animals well. Mm-hmm. So you really have to balance those interests a lot. Mm-hmm. So when these cases come up, that's usually why they come up. It's like, okay, well, we know you legally are allowed to do this thing, but you're not doing it correctly. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, a kind of a slippery slope. It is slippery slope. So what have we learned today? Hire a lawyer. Sacrifice animals humanely. Hire a lawyer. And don't abuse your kids. And hire a lawyer. And hire a lawyer. And don't say things you don't need to say. On the stand. Yeah. Or anywhere, really. Yeah. If they don't need to know, don't say it. Yeah. So, I will point out that we aren't really covering discrimination a whole lot here because it is really, a, really hard to get into Wicca as discrimination as far mm-hmm. as the law is concerned. I, d- I tried to do the rituals I could. I couldn't find anything that really worked outside of the stuff we already tackled with the prison systems and the, the military. Well, so hard. I do want to throw that for our listeners who are like, hey, you're missing a huge segment of law here. Well, 
you also have to look at um, exactly what we were talking about. A lot of these cases are settled outside of court. Mm -hmm. uh, individuals do not really have the amount of money for court fees. There was a time in my life where we hired a lawyer and almost went to sue my school system because there was a statement made against me and that did not have anything to do with my religion and the guidance counselors and their way of trying to figure out what actually was going on brought up my religion. Mm. And that was when we were like, nope, gotcha, <laughs> done. And it, what, it would have all boiled down to two different types of discrimination, including religious discrimination. And once the lawyer called my school, they pretty much just tried to appease me without naming names. And that's what it boiled down to. Yeah. And then they caught me in another way where I couldn't actually move school systems. But that's a long story <laughs> for another day. And anyway, that's a lot of why we don't have this, is that people just don't have the money to pursue these things. And these bigger systems have different ways of appeasing you before you go to court. And you also have to keep in mind, like, I don't want to dive into politics, but we have discussed off podcast about the recent religious task force that right. exists now. And it's like... Obviously, this is kind of more of anti-Muslim thing, but you have to think about it. If I'm a religious minority, like, how is this going to affect me? Yes. And it's really hard to say, mm -hmm. just based on these issues. Anyway, events coming up in recent pagan history. On the 19th, Mercury's finally going back the right way. Thank fuck. Yes. Right? So, on the 19th, just remember that once Mercury starts going the way it's supposed to be going is the most dangerous time, believe it or not. So, Mercury kind of does funky things around the 19th. Don't be surprised. So, I suggest, and the people that I read, suggest to wait just a little bit so longer. So, the week school starts up again. Congratulations. Sorry about ASU your students. ability to communicate with your professors for that first week. The 26th is the next full moon. And September 1st for us Arizonians is the next volunteer meeting for Pagan Pride. Uh, we want to thank a couple of our new Patreon supporters. We want to thank Bo and Laura. Yes, thank you. And uh, once again, uh, if you're you're wondering whether or not Patreon is is worth it, I believe it is because you get an entire dedicated mini so just for Patreon supporters, where we just talk about different different aspects that we don't get to in a regular show and it's just a little bit more extra content for you guys right and we're actually adding more and more little things that will help you guys feel like it's really worth it and the more that we can get the better especially coming up on pagan pride we really want to make sure that when we are out public facing you guys we have the best looking booth peg and pride just announced that they are actually going to do a booth decorating contest Ooh, so anytime that you guys um, support us even if you can just make a one-time donation instead of the monthly donations will help to make sure that not only we're there we're physically there we physically look half decent as far as forward facing but also we can then in the future provide you guys with more perks yeah and uh, I, I also have a couple more stickers that i'm looking to give out as well i've seen quite a bit of merch around this studio and i gotta say <laughs> it was worth it yeah. Yes, and we just actually got our brand new buttons in as well that we're going to be bringing to Pagan Pride Day. Yep. And we also might be doing a Pagan Pride Day exclusive Ooh, button. So keep that in mind. Ooh, yep. So if you're listening to us through links that you're finding on Facebook or Twitter, don't forget we're on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, and of course SoundCloud. So you can find us on all of those things. Uh, you can find the podcast itself, obviously, on Patreon, on Facebook at Millennial Pagan Podcast, Twitter at Millennial Pagan Pod, and our email is millennialpaganpod at 
gmail.com. Jarrah, where can we find you? Of course, on Twitter under Jarrah Stone, J-E-R-A-S-T-O-N-E. And you can find me, Autumn Wolf, on Facebook. I am at Autumn Iron Wolf at Twitter and on WordPress Iron Wolf Circle. And I promise for my readers, I will have something (laughs) published in this upcoming month of August. Good. And you can find me at opinionsofsaturn.tumblr.com. You can probably find me through Facebook because I use my real name like an idiot. You're comfortable with it. Oh, I'm absolutely comfortable with it. But that is that. Um, I also have a Goodreads page that I also post book reviews to. It is Lysistrata. If you're familiar with the play, that is just my username. And I hope to see you around. And we'll be posting those links so you can communicate with all three of us. If you have any questions and you can't find those links, just drop us an email. And we will definitely forward those to any of our future or previous guests. And uh, thank you again for coming out. Thank you for inviting me. properly frying everybody's brain. That's what I'm good at. Lots of information. Yes, lots of information. (laughs) But until next time, marry me. Marry part. And and marry marry meet meet again. again.